We are tonight's entertainment. You can't handle the truth. The fire rises. Pizza time. You're a wizard, Harry. So it begins. You know how much I sacrifice? You think that's air you're breathing? Groovy. I don't have friends. I got family. We are services so Trent, so far, hello. we're both hiding from uh jackson clark is this true oh uh the four-time friend of the show the yeah. the most the most visited guest of, uh, of all time besides the those currently present yeah i just thought that'd be an interesting way to open the episode I was going to ask you what you were eating. So you, I guess you can tell me that. But Oh, well, I mean, we can't just abandon the first topic you introduced. Uh, Jackson Clark has COVID-19, and he's quarantining a few rooms away. Um, but there are several series of doors dividing us. Um, so not Well, dividing you. Pop- I live in a different house. so No, uh, yeah. That um, works out. But I think we remain healthy, and we remain optimistic about the podcast... Yeah. I don't know if I remain optimistic about the state of the world. Didn't I text you yesterday that the... Well, I... I, I, Well, you very ominously texted me. Let me see if I can find it. The world is slowly ending, to which I responded, why, question mark? And you just said, the air is thick. Well, just because it was so fucking humid yesterday, and then everyone and their mom was like, it's so hot. And all I could think whenever someone said that is, it's only going to get hotter from, from here on out for the rest of our lives. Um, and so that was sort of not my realization because I think we've all known that for a while now, but, uh, yeah, I I wasn't too existential in my text. I, I, it seems like you were trying to treat it with a level of seriousness, which I appreciate. Well, that's, that's what I, I thought you were trying to be like poetic about it. Like the air is thick with, I don't know, something. No, just like, I I kind of just ignored it. I think I sent you that text when I was on the NJ Transit train to New York, mm. and I was <gasps> huffing and puffing just because there was no air on that train. I see. And so uh, it, it wasn't that deep, I'm afraid. But what have you been eating? Uh, wait, did you answer? Oh, uh, I just had a blueberry scone. Uh, I shopped at Whole Foods for the first time ever. Um, it's How was pretty it? cool. It's overpriced. More like Whole Paycheck, yeah. am I right? Um, <laughs> Just had a blueberry scone and some cran, cran, cran grape juice. It was delish. And you? Nice. Um, well, I guess my thing ties into the Jackson Clark thing. Um, I had a uh, get together at my house on Wednesday, which Trent attended, um, because my parents are out. This was a parent-sanctioned event, though. They knew about this. Don't worry. Um, and we all got oh, thank together. God, thank God your parents sanctioned the event. I was I was worried. If any parts family members are listening, we got we got the we got the we sign got off. permission. We got the sign off. It was less than ten guests. It was more of a hang, it was more of a big hangout than less of a small party. You know. Yeah. Um. But Trent, what did I make? Oh, uh, what did you make? Uh, I think th- this has to go back even further to the last time you had people over. When you made what we now call Parth's famous nachos, um, and the you... one time I made nachos that were not that good, and everybody won't let me hear the end of it. Um, but what was wrong with them? Well, the cheese wasn't melting properly, and it was yes. not the type of cheese that I usually buy, and that's why I was like, 
this is like aggravating to me because I was I had it in the oven for like like an hour or something, and I was like, I don't want the chips to combust. Like I don't want them to blacken. Yeah. Um, but the cheese just was not melting. That doesn't happen with the cheese I usually buy. And now Jackson Clark um, and Trent Elgare taunt me with Parts Famous Nachos. Well, I think we came up... I just entered the room, and just for the the, the funniness of the phrasing, it said Parts Famous Nachos. And then, after that, they ended up being mediocre. And so, you kind of, like... If they were good, we would have, like... They still would have been Parts Famous Nachos all the same. But it would, it's just a connotation. But uh, this time, you made Wings, which you were asking us to not call Parts Famous Wings. But after eating them, and after how delicious they were, I think that your nachos should be downgraded, and your wings should uh, move to Hollywood and find fame. But these wings were very spicy, because I put a little bit too much uh, red chili powder on them before I put them in the oven. Yes, and, and, and it was very hot. The air was thick, and so yeah. the, the only thing hotter than the weather, though, was Parth's wings. Ooh. Um, but anyways, to answer your question, today I had the leftover, the remaining leftovers of uh, Parth's famous wings. Yeah, you had like a mango sauce, but then you also had like just Frank's Red Hot. So yeah. really something for everyone at, at, at Parth's unsupervised a less than 10 person house party. But enough about my wings. Trent. Your famous your famous wings. Oh, Trent, there's some major like clock action, action going on in here. Uh, yeah. Do you think it's like a clock? Well, you know what I you know what I meant. But anyways, um I think it's time we cut into this episode because or to the into the intro at least because It's into the intro of the episode to the hateful yeah. eight intro episode of the hateful eight episode yeah. interview at episode. Cue the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about working on the picture. This week we have assistant editor of The Hateful Eight, Andrew Risen. Yes, we did. It was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed myself, didn't you? I did. And speaking of enjoying ourselves, Trent had another story he wanted to tell. Um, but I stopped not- him. Yes. Well, I I stopped him from telling it at the beginning. Thank beginning. Be, thank you for being transparent about what what transpired. Well, because what happened is I've heard some people say that we go on for a while at the beginning of our episodes. So I was like, well, I want to at least cut into our intro so that people don't, you know, just write this episode off. Um, is this is our one hundred and first episode? We're living in a post one hundred world. We are. Congrats on a hundred episodes, Trent. Yes, like um, um, basically the only reason I want to bring this up is because it's one of like the two moments of childhood wonder I've had in the last five years. And it was Jackson introducing this game called Sardines. It's basically hide and seek, except one person hides. And as soon as, um, and everybody goes looking for them, when one person finds them, they have to hide in the same place. And we played this in my house with all the lights turned off. And I was yes. the first person to hide. 
Yes. And for anyone who played hide and seek in the dark as a kid, it's like that, but like so much more fun because people are like slowly disappearing and it's dark and part yeah, cuz you're calling so- out you're calling out for people's names and suddenly sure they stop responding. Yes. And and so I was I was hiding in my closet and I realized, "Oh my god, they're calling out for names and they're disappearing. This is like Batman." And then oh. I realized <laughs> that my phone was connected to a speaker that we were using for music of an hour or two before. And so I started playing Can't Fight City Halloween from the Batman soundtrack, which is the music that plays at the beginning of the Batman, where Batman is, like, about to fight, you know, what fear's a tool, like, all that shit, you know? Um, I, must so, push my, I must push myself. Yeah. Nocturnal and so uh, I, I connected my phone to the speaker and played that and as if it wasn't scary enough just like like guys you grow up and you think the dark isn't that scary but then like walking around in like the dark it's not fun and especially when Parth is playing Batman music and like you know no one's gonna pop out at you but everyone except you was just in unfamiliar territory and you had some creepy furnace rooms and stuff that we had to like look through but um, I hate to compare it to Among Us, especially because I've never played that game. But people kept making that reference. But it's it is like it, a, it was it, kind of like Among Us, in in IRL, if you will. Yeah. Um, um. But my only other moment of childhood wonder, as in I was introduced to something that made me feel like a kid again, is the game Settlers of Catan, and I was like mm. past the point in my life where I thought that new board games could be fun, but it's awesome. And so is this. And we played Knockout. Like, what a day. We, we were. It was like we were, like, 12. But yeah. there was alcohol. What? Anyways, but you know what else was awesome? This interview with Andrew Eisen. Yeah, with Andrew Eisen, the assistant editor of The Hateful Eight, and other cool movies like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and The Mandalorian. Yeah. Um, it's a TV show. He, oh, wait, and Django Unchained. Wow, he's on his worst behavior. Yeah. He, maybe he just he, likes cute. He likes QT like the rest of us. Oh, remember he wore his really cool uh, "Once Upon a Time in Hollywood" shirt. He did indeed. But yeah, this is a really cool episode. Uh, he talks about how he got started in editing, how we met Fred Raskin, um, just a lot of cool stories. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it. And and this is only part one. Really? This is a two part. Yeah, this is a two part interview. News to me. Was it very long, or is this more of a uh, the the, the inner. No, the interview was like an hour, and there was kind of a natural stopping point in the middle, and so I felt like two 40-minute episodes was preferable to one hour and ten-minute long episode. And to any curious parties who may have listened to the end of our 100th episode spectacular, where we revealed our next episode as... Oh, yes, that's changed. Yes, that obviously has changed since we're talking with you now about Hateful Eight. Um, but the, our special guest, who will be announced when the time is right, got their gallbladder removed. And so they are recovering. And when they're ready to discuss Jaws, we will discuss Jaws. And then Jaws 2, yes. and then Jaws 3D, and then Jaws not... F- it's not called Jaws 4, just yeah. Jaws Jaws the colon the revenge. And maybe Trent and Parth will... Um, yes, there's been big talk. Be, you know, in an interesting state is how I'll Inca- put it. Incapacitated. Let's hope not. Yeah. Um, but for now, you're just gonna have to settle for this really awesome Andrew Eisen interview. So 
you know. Yeah, I, I, I would think, yeah, yes. It's funny the juxtaposition of the professional elements because, like, we got Andrew Eisen, assistant editor of The Hateful Eight, awesome guy, professional, worked with QT. But then also we're just, like, talking about playing hide-and-seek and getting drunk at our parents' house. And so what a life we live. Yeah, you get everything here at Craft Services, the full spectrum of the 21-year-old life, you know? Yes. Parth Marate, the, the experience, colon, the experience. Nice. All right. I think it's time we cut into the intro. We've, colon, we've the held revenge. them off long enough. Long enough. Yes. We, yes. Um, okay. Enjoy the interview. If you want to talk with Parth and I again, just wait until the end of it. And yeah, then... we'll, we'll be back. Don't worry. Cue the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Andrew Eisen. He's worked on such projects as Django and Chain, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and The Mandalorian, as well as our film for today, Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just to start off, um, what was your relationship with film like uh, at a young age? It's <laughs> uh, a good question. I, I uh, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the, uh, of the 70s, and I... So I grew up in a very analog world and, um, and, you know, just as a little kid, my dad used to have this, uh, eight millimeter camera that, he, you know, that he used to run around following us with. And it was, it was this, it was called a Kodak Brownie, uh, camera. And it was a, it was a, basically a, a box that had three turret lens on it that you could just like, sort of like you pull out and you could rotate the lens. You had like a, like a 50 millimeter or maybe a 20 and a, you know, 80 or something, basically wide medium and close and and base and and he and he would just follow us around and then we'd have movie night where we you know set up a sheet on the wall and with a eight millimeter projector and, and watch those those eight millimeter movies and just sit there and eat popcorn and laugh and all that and i i basically fell in love with just you know like so many of us just like the you know the the dark room the flickering lights the seeing everybody kind of moving around and um and the fact that you know we could reproduce ourselves and then um and then I started, you know, going to the movies and sitting in movie theaters and, and just being completely enthralled with, um, you know, you know, seeing the, the, you know, the lights go down and, and, and the, you know, the Warner Brothers logo come up on the screen. And you're like, oh, you know, today we, we're so um, over. Um, there's just there's so much content. And, there, and, you know, if you're growing up in this world, my kids, they're just used to like turning on the television and having a thousand 10,000, a million things to watch. And I think that, that, um, the, the abundance of this, the shine, the, the whatever of, of, uh, you know, of, of sitting there in that, in, in a, in a dark room and watching a movie and in being a, a unique thing that you had to go to a movie theater to do, you had to, you know, you paid money, you sat down kind of like a few years ago, like we all used to, but even then, you know, with, because of the, all the content today, I do think that the feeling I had as a kid has sort of um, is sort of a lost uh, is lost on a lot of people. Maybe not. Maybe maybe every kid experiences that. But that's that that was so that was how I sort of like sort of fell in love with it. And then years later, as a just as a preteen, I remember digging around in our attic and I find and I found that camera. And I uh, was like, wow, you know, I haven't seen this camera in a long time. And I picked it up and there was some film in it. And I um, 
so I just started shooting some stuff and then I took it to the local drugstore and I had it developed, got it back a few days later. And I watched, I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I just, I just filmed my first stuff. And so I, I had all these like toys in my bedroom and everything. And I would, um, I would get like all my toy cars and my Hot Wheels sets and stuff like that. And I started, it was an eight millimeter camera that didn't have like a single frame, you know, stop motion. It didn't have stop motion. I literally, you, you pull the trigger and you get like, you know, a second or something. But I would, I would shoot like, you know, stop motion stuff with my, all my stuff in my room and then watch and then get it back, you know, and watch it and see all my stuff moving around all by itself. Every once in a while, I see my hand in there. Um, but it was really, I was, I was developing this real love for this idea of, you know, being able to manipulate time and space and, and just the, still like watching it on that white sheet on the wall in the dark room. Just there's something about that that just, I just fell in love with. And I would go to the local library and I, I would, you know, they used to rent eight millimeter movies at the library before there was VHS, believe it or not. And uh, I would, you know, rent Laurel and Hardy movies and Charlie Chaplin, all these movies, or sometimes they would have like more mainstream movie that, um, you know, that had been out five or 10 years ago. And they would have like a five minute clip of that. That's all that would fit on the film reel. And you just watch like an excerpt of, of a movie always with no sound uh, and that, that that was you know i sort of I, I sort of fell in love with that and then um as a teenager i i got into photography and i got and i also went and bought myself a, a super eight millimeter camera that had a lot more capability on it i started doing a lot more stop motion stuff and shooting movies with my friends in high school and writing these stupid scripts and going out on the weekends and shooting stuff and um and just fell more and more in love with it. And so I'm one of five kids. All of my 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 dad's a doctor. My all my siblings, my older siblings, uh, were all sort of um, you know very studious uh, you know kids. And I was sort of more the art artsy dreamer in the house. Who was you know uh, you know I did okay in school. I was maybe like a, a B plus student or something. But I, I I didn't put any work into it at all. I I spent all of my time. Um, making making my own little movies, and eventually I went to film school in Toronto. That's where I'm from, uh, a school called York University that had a film production program, and uh, and I you know I honed my craft a little bit more there. But um, it wasn't really until I got out to the real world that uh, I really started you know learning and I'm just you know getting good at um, the craft and um, you know. But but all, all, through all these stages of my life, I just kept you know advancing, advancing, advancing in terms of the craft and and it was something that started out as a sort of a childhood hobby and a dream and and became a career uh somehow stupidly without any real um you know i didn't really have a plan to be honest i just kind of like followed <laughs> let the wind take me where it took me and and you know uh, it was just more more my passion to sort of kind of drove it but not um not really anything intellectually so how did you gravitate towards editing and like when did you know that like that was the path for you and like what was it about it that was so attractive so so going back to those childhood things you know after you get the film back you i i I bought these little i don't even know if you guys can imagine what i'm talking about but um they would have these would be like a little viewer with two little um film little reels on each side and you put the film in feed it in through one side and you hand crank it and you and you you watch the film going, you know, and that's how you would edit, and you would you you could move it, slide it back and forth, 
find your cut point. And then, you know, basically in those days, really all I was doing was cutting out the bad stuff and then just splicing, you know, splicing everything else together. But um, I kind of enjoyed the craft of that. And then when I got into film school, what I, I really thought I was going to be a director. And that's really in my mind. You know, I've been making all these movies with my kids. I was making, I mean, not my kids, my friends. And, um, but I, you know, when I got to film school, I started to realize that that was going to be a, it's a very daunting task. It's a, you have to have a certain type of personality. You have to be, you're kind of like the general of an army. Everyone's, you know, and everyone, you have to be able to have, be able to see the big picture. Um, everyone's coming at you. I mean, I didn't really realize that back then, but seeing it now, you know, the directors I work with, like, you know, you've got a, a crew of a thousand people and everyone's coming at you. It's like, which color fabric do you, do I want? You know, uh, how, where should we put just so many things. And it's like, I don't want to be that guy. I really enjoy sitting in the dark room and putting it all together after it's, uh, after it's been shot. And so in film school, I found myself not only editing my own stuff, but a lot of my colleagues and my, my, students would come to me and because they'd see that i'd be up all night in the labs editing and they're like can you do my stuff too and i would i would basically start editing everyone's stuff and i it was just something i just i love it i like i'm a i'm a more of a an introverted type person at least more so then and um so being alone in a room and just sort of you know putting these things together just was very exciting to me and it still is i, I do it um, I work crazy hours when I'm working out and I, uh, I enjoy every minute of it. I'm totally, I get totally lost in, 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 in the world editing. So to get to the film of the day, um, how do you get involved with the hateful eight? Hateful eight was 2015 back in 2012. Uh, they were making Django Unchained and, um, you know, if you know a little bit about Quentin Tarantino and his movies and, and his crew, he's very loyal to his crew. He keeps the same crew forever. Uh, I think actually one of his script supervisors is one of the people who's actually been with him since Reservoir Dogs all the way till even once upon a time in Hollywood. Mo most of the, some people have died and things like that. And one of the people who died was Sally Menke, his editor, um, and uh, which was very sad and very tragic. And... Um, a very close friend of mine, uh, Fred Raskin, had worked with Quentin and Sally as an apprentice or a second assistant editor on the Kill Bill movies. And Fred, uh, if you ever have a chance to interview him, he's a, very, he's a fascinating We'd guy. We'd love to have him on the pod. Just putting that out there. Re reach out to him and, and see if he'll come on. He's, um, he, he's just, he's just if, if you know anything about Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino obviously is a huge film buff i would even call him a buff i would say he's more of a film savant um and he uh and and fred was able to keep up with him back in those days even as like you know he's a, he was a you know young kid on the crew and um and quentin is, is very um engaging with everybody on the crew he's 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 not a um a prima donna at all at least not when it comes to the editing room or anytime i've ever seen him and, and he um and so he obviously engaged Fred and, and, and Quentin also owns um, a movie theater called the New Beverly in Los Angeles, where he shows all these, uh, you know, everything. Oh, on film. I went there this past summer. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. So you, it, it's, it's amazing. It's just feels, you know, old time movie theater. Um, and uh, he, he shows a whole gamut of films. It's not, it's not just, you know, retro stuff. It's any, it's anything that he just feels like putting on. He curates the list every single month. Um, 
And so anyhow, long story short, Fred would go to these, his theater. He, Quentin would often be at the theater. They'd see each other. They became very, they became close, even though Fred was no longer working with them. He, um, he stayed in touch and somehow Fred's name popped into his head when he realized he had to find a new editor. And, um, and so I think, you know, Quentin, I don't know what went on in Quentin's head, but he somehow he took the gamble to take Fred, who had already now um, started establishing himself. He had, like like all of us young editors, and I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent now, um, we, you know, most of us start out as assistant editors, and we, uh, you know, we try to work our way up. We work with, you know, the best people we can get our hands on, and um, and you eventually hope to get moved up the chain or if you can't move up within um that hierarchy or that structure because everyone's already in place and it's just really hard to move up you you go off on your own and you start working on indie you try to work on an indie movie for no money and hopefully the director you're working with turns into something and makes a good movie and that it, it propels you into that next phase um i've done that a bunch of times in my early career and, and the movies went absolutely nowhere never to be heard of and the directors never continued on and so it didn't always work out, but Fred happened to hook up with a guy named Justin Lin, who um, turned out to be Justin Fast Lin. and Furious movies. And Fast and Furious movies, and uh, one of the earlier movies before that was a movie called Annapolis with James Franco that Fred, you know, edited, and they, they developed a great relationship. And so here, Fred was, a, you know, younger than I am, and and a, a good friend for a long time, and had now was now had now propelled way past and 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 was working on all these big movies. So anyway, Quentin hired him to do Django Unchained. And Fred and I, at the time, I was um, just in between projects. I was trying to, you know, I was looking for editing work. Wasn't Nothing was really happening at the moment. Uh, um, I've had a pretty steady career for the last, I'm not going to age myself, but for since I started out, uh, I've had very, very little downtime. But in that particular period, I did. And he said, hey, do you want to come work with me on the movie? And I said, would, you know, we thought, would it be weird because we're friends? And and um, I said, I, 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 it won't be weird for me. I'll do, you know, if I do my job, I'm going to do my job. Don't worry. You know, you're the boss. Da, 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 da. And uh, so here we were working on this uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. I had not met Quentin yet. I was terrified. I was very, very intimidated by the fact that one day I was going to meet him. We were, you know, we were... Um, working in the editing room and getting dailies every day for months before Quentin finally finished shooting and came in. And I remember the first day that Quentin came in and it was a summer day and he was wearing, you know, shorts and a t-shirt and he, he kind of looked like a little boy, you know, going to school, you know? And uh, I, I was like, he was not intimidating at all. You know, he, I, I'm relatively short. He's pretty tall. Uh, that in itself could be intimidating sometimes, but no, he came in, he was, that sort of mood you see him in sometimes in interviews where he's just very happy and excited and just very passionate and just, you just like always, always kind of laughing about everything. And, um, and I introduced myself and I told him what a fan I was and, and the barrier just fell down right away. So that basically I got involved, at, at, you know, working with them on Django Unchained, developed a terrific relationship on that movie. And so when the hate flight came around, it was a no brainer that, um, you know, I was going to continue on. I, I had been, I was working on another movie at the time called Concussion, uh, a Will Smith movie. And, um, and, um, and that, and, and Hateful Eight sort of came up out of nowhere. Like, I mean, it had obviously been brewing for a long time on the, 
on the on their end, but I did not know it was happening. You know, Quentin just sort of decides, okay, I'm, I'm now I'm ready to make it, and he just makes it. Unlike other filmmakers who have to wait for a whole studio process, Quentin decides he's ready to shoot. He just goes like a few months later, and so um, I had to leave Concussion to go to Hateful Eight because there was no way in a million years I was not going to work with Quentin again. Um, as I anyone who knew me at the time back in 2012 when we did Django knew or heard me gush about Quentin and the process and the movie and and um, that it was my favorite experience of all time in my whole career up until that point and so I you know as, as good as my other experiences were and, and, and concussion was terrific um, I had to go out and work on Hateful Eight and so I had just come back from Pittsburgh uh, on concussion where we were shooting and uh, we thought we were going to be editing Hateful Eight in Los Angeles while they filmed in Telluride and instead they um, called us like two days before shooting began and said, oh, Quentin had no idea you guys were staying in Los Angeles. He, he wants you out here. So um, we had to like, I just barely finished unpacking from the Pittsburgh thing and I had to pack up and go to Telluride again. Let me tell you, there are worse things in life than going to Telluride to edit a movie. Um, it was, it's amazing up there. It's gorgeous. And it's, uh, so it was, it was the perfect environment to be, to be editing um, a movie that took place there, you know, in, in the snow. So we've talked to like editors and assistant editors and uh, editorial consultants, all that jazz. But uh, you are often credited as an editor. Uh, editor uh, an, an associate editor and yes. i was wondering what the distinction was there and what like their responsibilities are you know so an associate editor is sort of like this sort of nebulous term and it's um the the editor's guild does not acknowledge the term associate editor as far as the uh, motion picture editors guild our union is concerned there are editors and there are assistant editors and there are apprentice editors but there's no such thing as um associate editors However, um, it's, it was a way of giving uh, assistant editors who were sort of doing a, a work above and beyond just assisting um, a way of acknowledging the work that they had done on the film. So on Hateful Eight, there's a whole, um, there are a whole bunch of scenes that, I, um, that Fred didn't have time. You know, it's a very long movie. And um, he would just say, hey, here, why don't you edit this such and such a scene and I would go off and edit it. And, you know, if, as long as the, it doesn't change radically or they don't throw the whole thing out and start over again, they, you know, if, if it was just one scene, you know, most assistant editors get that opportunity to edit a scene here and there. Um, I was, I was just very involved in the edit uh, and very involved in, in the process along with um, Fred and Quentin. They, they pretty much brought me in um during you know their edit sessions and wanted my uh, my feedback and, and contribution and you know thoughts and um, and that sort of went on for the for the year that we worked on it so or maybe not quite a year but um, uh, that that put me in a position of of, of you know uh, getting an associate editor credit sometimes you know I, I you know in, in other cases I've done the same thing gotten additional editor credit. And in other cases, I've gotten actual film editor credit, depending on the amount of work you did, you know, one did. Um, Quentin had never given a, given out a credit like that before on any of his movies. So he, um, so I, yeah, so I, but I, so I was gunning for a, for a, like, I think additional, he said, you know, let's, let's, you know, 
associate editor, and they also gave me two credits because visual effects editor as well. Um, because unlike most of his other movies, uh, Hateful Eight did have visual effects in it. I mean, we shot in Minnie's haberdashery. Um, they they built the entire place, the actual place in Telluride on the side of the mountain, just like you see in the movie. Um, but we actually ran out of snow. Uh, it, it just basically was a bad winter, and it, it, there was just not enough snow. And so they eventually, um, it actually really had nothing to do with snow. They wanted to they wanted to film as much as they could inside. So when you saw at the windows, you could actually see it snowing, and you could see all this other stuff. But they realized when it came to the night stuff that you weren't going to see anything out the windows anyway. So they built, they recreated the exact Minnie's haberdashery at um, a studio here in Los Angeles. And it was the middle of summer. It was 90 degrees outside. You're like, you know, shorts and t-shirt, you show up at the studio and you go on the set and you have to put on a ski jacket because they throw it, they, they drop the set down to like 20 degrees. It was below zero so they could have the breath and that everyone would actually be cold. So I admit there's a scene where um, Bob, the Mex- Bob Mexican and, um, and uh, Marquis, uh, I'm trying to remember their names now. It's been a while since I've actually worked on and watched the movie. But we, um, they, they're, they're face-to-face, and he's, he's accusing him of being a liar, and you see the breath coming out of their mouths, and everyone said, oh, that was such fake breath. And I'm like, that's one of the few things in the movie that's not fake. That was 100% real, and that was shot in Los Angeles in the summer. Yeah, so basically, you know, just being very, very involved, just being at a le- working at a level that was above and beyond what an assistant editor would typically do, which is, you know, normally, you know, you're responsible for making sure all the dailies are organized and, and sunk up and, um, you know, and, and, and put in bins for the editor and you do, some, you do some sound work for the editor, things like that. Um, I was I was doing a lot more editing as well. A lot of the stuff inside the stagecoach um, is the stuff that I did that basically, you know, maybe changed a little bit, but not not a lot. Is being on location for an editing job considered unusual? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, maybe now more, especially now during COVID, where we're all just working from home and everyone's realized that we don't really have to be uh, on location anymore. But back, you know, before we had the the ability to do even what you and I are doing right now, just talking to each other on basically what is kind of a Zoom call. Um, that didn't really exist a few years ago, you know, I don't know. Uh, so, and, and certainly we didn't have the uh, bandwidth to be, to be um, for me to be editing at home and for to be able to broadcast that live to in a, you know, a director and work with that. So back in my early career, many of the movies I worked on, I, I had good fortune um before meeting my wife of uh, of going on locations in London and Brazil and Italy and France and uh, in Canada and different parts of the United States, every movie that I worked on shot in different places and they want, and they bring the editors and they would bring all of our film equipment with us. And, um, you know, before we even had Avids and, you know, the director wants to be able to come in and, and, you know, watch, you know, watch the dailies together, work on a cut over the weekend, just be able to just have close access to the editor. You know, in those days, it was, if the, if the editor wasn't nearby, you just, you know, the editor, the director really had no idea what was going on. It wasn't like, oh, let's just shoot him a quick time or something, you know, that didn't exist. So, um, yeah. Uh, and, and still, like, if you work on a Marvel movie now, like, they bring everybody to Atlanta to shoot their movies. They want the 
goes through there uh, just so that the team is together. And, we, you know, the, one of the best things about being together is, is sitting down. And, and this is also a lost art, but in the back of, on, depending on the filmmaker, but back in the old days, um, we would sit down and watch dailies every single day. There would, there would be a screening of dailies either at lunchtime or after, after a wrap. You sit down, you, you project the film, or you, whether it's on video or film, and, and with the director, and you take notes and you talk about the, the shots and stuff. Oh, I like this. I, you know, I, this is what I intended this for. I want to cut here, here, whatever. And um, I like this performance. That's that's very much gone away now. There's no time for that anymore. Everyone's just rushing, rushing, rushing. Plus, <laughs> with shooting on shooting digitally now, you know, we typically like. Working on the Mandalorian, we'll get it. We'll have a day where we get six hours of dailies, and um, that was unheard of in the film days. They just couldn't shoot. They never ever shot that much. Um, you know, typically uh, most movies were single camera. Occasionally, if there was a, you know, an action scene or uh, certain types of scenes, they might have a you know A and B camera, and that would double the amount of dailies you had but you know getting an hour of dailies was pretty normal so now it's just impossible it's just too much to watch um, um but yes uh, but and, and then also just going back to the associate editor thing the other thing about the quentin tarantino movies and as also on chris nolan movies you know he shoots on film in this particular case we were shooting on 65 millimeter film and um carrying the film in the editing room. So normally when they, when they would shoot a 65, a uh, 70 millimeter movie, uh, the labs would give a reduction print. Basically they would take the 70 millimeter and give the editing room a 35 millimeter print to edit with because it was manageable. And then they would blow it, you know, or just go back to the original 70 millimeter negative at the end to, to, to finish it. In this case, Quentin wanted the editing room. He wanted us editing with the 65 millimeter film. So while we were editing on the Avid, as a scene got finished or close to finished, we would screen every single week. We would, um, Quentin wanted to watch the cut scene on, in a movie theater. So we would rent out the, the Director's Guild of America, which was nearby, in the afternoons when it wasn't really being used. And um, we would go there with like a 10-minute scene and just would sit and watch it on film and, and just see how it played on the big screen. And he didn't want to do that on 35. So we have um, a, uh, a film crew working next to us and as a film as a scene is finished i would put together a list um a, a cut list for them which, which has key numbers or edge numbers that would match the side of the negative and or the the print i'm sorry and they would um assemble it and they had to get this equipment built basically because nobody's ever edited actually on 65 they've used it in for negative cutting but never for um actual editing so um it was a it was a learning curve for all the all the film crew involved, and that's you know, f- work, people who can work on film is also a lost art. There's very few young people who can do it anymore. Most of the people still doing it are people my age or older who are also just sort of um, going away or don't want to do it anymore. It's very strenuous work, and um, so there's very few people left in town who actually are very good at that. And so those guys tend to get all the same jobs. They work on all the Quentin Tarantino movies. They work on all the Chris Nolan movies, and that same film crew just keeps going. We so, we talked with John Lee, who's an assistant editor on a lot of Nolan's movies, and he said mm-hmm. that for Tenet they were doing IMAX dailies, 
happened that they right. had to get those built in all the like seven countries they were shooting in or whatever. And he was right. like, that was pretty insane. Yeah, that was our same thing. Uh, 65 is We was, yeah, that's what we were doing. And Avid, Avid actually built us, Avid built us a, a special patch, a special version of Avid just to be able to carry those numbers. Because it, it, there's, you know, there's edge numbers on the edge of 35 millimeter film and negative that, that Avid can track, but it can't, it could never track 65 millimeter numbers. It's a different frame rate and everything. So they built us a special version of that They're all the movies now we're using. What an interview. Whew. And it's not even done. Yeehaw. No, this is only the halfway point. I it, what, what a natural stopping point. Let me just compliment you on that. I, I think that um, as of right now, I've edited this first half of the interview. Um, and I think instead of our normal film projector sounds, I'm going to put some, some Hateful Eight score in there. Whoa. Uh, yeah? That sounds awesome. Yeah, just because it's like Ennio Morricone. You know, just kind of awesome. No, no, yeah, yeah. Um, that does sound awesome. Like I know that the f- listeners will have listened to it already because that must have happened earlier in the episode. But I'm sure it was awesome. But I haven't heard it yet because no. it's happened twice now for the in- introducing the interview and closing it out. Um, well, this is riveting. Um, but should we close out the episode? I think it's time. My my battery is at twenty four percent. Oh, it's, well, it's with only 24% left, we would really be cutting it close to carry well, it. Well, it, it goes it goes longer. down quickly. It, it this, this started at 60%, and it's only been, like, 20 minutes. Gee willikers, Parth. Um, My battery percent is dropping like flies. It's actually, it's dropping like people were while playing sardines at my party. And Sophia Alexis and Sarah Brotman didn't even find us. They just, like, called it. They said yeah. that the game was over. I think they officially weren't having fun anymore, and that it was more scary than fun. Yeah. And then no. And then when I hid, you found me. But then you were so exhilarated that you just yelled "Aha!" And then the game well, was. We, you hid over. in a you hid in a very good spot, and by that point, everybody was done with the game. Like nobody yes. was really having fun anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. I, but like the the first round was nothing short of exhilarating. Yeah. And so is this interview, you know? Yes. But yes. guys, if you like this first half of the interview, you just it's wait. not even comparable to the second yeah. half. Yeah, we were just getting cozy in the first 40 minutes so we could really kick things off in part two. Yeah, but... Um, we were just getting comfortable you in wait, our bodies, in Andrew Eisen's body. Everyone's body was getting comfortable. While you wait for part two, though, you know what you could do? You could give us, like, a good review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Well, and no, no Well, you can give Spotify. us a good rating on Spotify. Five and stars, a good please. review. Yeah. And a good on review Apple on Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you get your podcasts, if you're a weirdo and you use something besides those two. Well, some international countries have to, Trent. Um, but, yeah, you can do that. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, let us know what episodes you want us to do. We've got some good stuff cooking don't we? Yes. Because we've we got a, have... we've got part two of this, we've got our discussion, we've got Jaws the miniseries, and then maybe we have two other miniseries planned. Maybe. Maybe not. 
maybe I'm not fully sure what you're referring to, but maybe I, I can just keep being ominous and they'll yeah. think that I'm just being discreet. Maybe. Um, okay, this is the end of the episode. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Bye.